Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. I also host the podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, which you can listen to if you need your literary fix fast. This podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, is for anyone out there who wants to feel better in their bodies like I do. There's a private support group that I started on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. And all of us share tips, suggestions, recipes, meal ideas, and generally just give each other lots and lots and lots of support so that it isn't so hard to do what should be simple, but somehow isn't. So please listen to the podcast, hear stories from people just like you who have struggled and overcome things and have ideas and suggestions. And let's just do this together. We got this. Thanks for listening. Rebecca Pacheco is the author of Still Life, The Myths and Magic of Mindful Living. Rebecca is an international yoga teacher, creator of the popular yoga and wellness site Omgal, and a writer. She began practicing yoga at the age of 16 and teaching it at age 20. Formerly a master teacher at the Baptiste Power Yoga Institute in Boston, Rebecca's style now incorporates many yoga influences. Rebecca has appeared in national ad campaigns for Reebok, Rika, New Balance, Ibex, and more. She's a global ambassador for Lululemon, spokesperson for Lycra, and avid athlete who ran the Boston Marathon in 2009 and 2014. She regularly complements the training programs of athletes from amateur to Olympian with her OM athlete classes, talks, and workshops. She's honored to be the annual MC of New England's largest yoga event, Yoga Reaches Out, at the Dana-Farber Fieldhouse at Gillette Stadium. Rebecca has an MA in English from the University of Richmond, where she first immersed herself in the study of Eastern religions and philosophies. Prior to starting OMGAL, Rebecca worked in education for at-risk youth in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and was a marketing executive at Boston Magazine. Her creative blend of top-notch teaching and content helps yogis of all levels become more healthy and mindful in yoga and life. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight to discuss mindfulness and your book, Still Life, and your amazing essay that you just published on Moms Don't Have Time to Write, and just so many other great things. So welcome. Thank you, Zibi. I'm delighted to be here. And you know, thank you for the opportunity to share that essay. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, yay. Okay. So why don't you just explain your background a little bit to everybody and your books that you've written and how you have become this expert that you are? Sure. So I've had a windy path, but I would say that writing has always been the mainstay. I grew up, I'm sure you can relate, as the kid who rebelled by like literally under the covers with a flashlight reading a book past my bedtime. I majored in English literature. And of course, I always wanted to write a book. And how to do that was an entirely different story, especially, you know, when you have to pay the rent and when you're spit out into the real world and have to figure out your career path, right? So along the way, I also fell deeply in love with yoga. This was, you know, I like to say I started doing yoga so long ago that we didn't even have yoga pants. We just had pants. (laughs) And you could wear them to yoga. Um, and, and so yoga was not really a conscious decision as a career path, but it evolved into this giant element of my professional life. And at some point, I merged the two. I started a popular blog in the heyday of blogs. And that became the fodder for my first book, which is called Do Your Own Thing, Bending Yoga Tradition to Fit Your Modern Life. That was published in 2015. And so the follow-up here is a book called Still Life, The Myths and Magic of Mindful Living. 
It comes out on August 3rd, which is very exciting. And it is, you know, in essence, it's a book about meditation, but it's also about what to do when you can't meditate. (laughs) And it's also about what to do when life gets in the way, because it seems to have a knack for doing that. (laughs) Perhaps you've noticed, especially, you know, with what we've all been through very recently. So, and then, you know, for your listeners, I think a couple of things that might be appealing in particular is the fact that while it's mainly a how-to, it has a memoiristic voice to it. And I hope readers enjoy that. And then the other piece is that I am a mom. And as far as meditation books go, as far as the field of mindfulness in general goes, and so many fields <laughs> which are male-dominated, there's not a lot of motherhood unless it is a book explicitly about motherhood, right? And and so much of life, life itself originates with motherhood. And so I like the fact that it's not a meditation book for moms. It just happens to be written by a mom. You know, I, I'm not a monk on a mountaintop writing this book about mindfulness. I'm I'm a mother. <laughs> and and you know, a writer and a yoga teacher and all those things, but I'm just excited to talk to you about it and, and love your show so much. Thank you. My favorite chapter was you outline a bunch of myths of like how people can like get in the way of, of why they aren't meditating or doing what they need to be doing. And one of which is that they don't have time. So you have a whole chapter on that. And I was like, oh, well, this is perfect. And you debunk it immediately. And you're like, you have some time. Let's t- use the time that you have. Like, let's work with that. Do you have two minutes? Do you have 30 seconds? Yeah. And it's so true because it's such a catch-all excuse. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. But we have time for everything. It's just how we use it and how we allocate it. And your argument is that you're much better off if you spend even a little bit of that time meditating. So I just like really responded to that. I don't, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's also the shortest chapter in the book. It's true. It was super short. I know. I was like, this is great. (laughs) Because I was in the throes of writing it and rewriting it. And I thought, no, this needs to be a short chapter. The whole essence of it is that we are short on time. And so it needs to do what it intends. It needs to teach also in its structure. So it's short on purpose. And, you know, I, I go over several things, but there's a favorite one minute meditation that I share. And that's something that I feel like is just such a helpful tool to have in your back pocket. You know, I've done that in the doctor's waiting room when I'm feeling anxious. I've done it in a parked car before I go into a big meeting. I've done it, you know, when my child won't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) A one minute way to ground yourself. And so it ends up being not that you're dedicating more time, you're just differentiating or deciding to use your time a little differently. And I, and, and I like to go for reasonable commitments and not, you know, for the longest time in my own practice, I heard, and it was kind of a popular principle at the time, that anything under 20 minutes a day was useless. And so that was an obstacle to me personally for a very long time. And then, and I kept setting a goal to meditate every day and I kept failing and I kept trying and I kept failing. And and then one day I finally took all the parameters off every single guidepost. It didn't have to look a certain way. It didn't have to contain a certain, you know, it didn't have to be of a certain duration. I didn't have to do it in a precious little spot in my house with comfy pillows and candles. Just whatever it was, 
sometime every day. And that changed everything for me personally. So that's kind of the lens through which I see it and try to share it. And I'm glad that that chapter worked for you. (laughs) I also think, you know, mindfulness and meditation, all of this is so important when we're talking about food and eating and our bodies and the attention that we pay to all of that. Because if you don't stop and like pay attention to the choices you're making and the foods you're eating and all of that, like it's so easy to just, you know, inhale everything in sight. So I feel like these techniques can be applied to eating and weight loss and all of these things and just feeling better in your bodies in addition to the yoga and all of that. And I just wanted to like loop in your new essay for Mom's No Time to Write. And thank you so much for writing this. And for listeners, you can go to Mom's No Time to Write on Medium. And if you can't find it there, just go to zibbyowens.com and look for Mom's No Time to Write and you will find Rebecca's essay. I'm sure it'll be up by the time this podcast comes out. So I just wanted to read a little bit, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Oh, yes. I'd be honored. Thanks. I'll get embarrassed, but... No, don't be embarrassed. It's amazing. Last week, I smashed my bathroom scale. It was an accident, but it was also kind of spectacular, like performance art or therapy or both. The timing seemed appropriate as we are poised at the disembarkation point of a global pandemic. And you may have noticed that the diet industry, sometimes known as the wellness industrial complex, and let's be frank, the patriarchy, is tromping at the opportunity to weigh in on our size and self-worth, which have long possessed an inverse relationship according to conventional beauty standards. Smaller equates greater worthiness, bigger, less. This has always been the myth and business model to sell future selves that don't necessarily align with health or happiness, but rather buying products and apps and supplements and meal plans and cleanses and devices and so that we will take up less space. Genuine health and well-being are mostly moot as contentment proves disadvantageous to commercial interest. To sell something, we must believe it fills a lack. Manufacture lack and you give people more reasons to buy stuff. Okay, I'll just read one more paragraph. I know this first as a woman on planet Earth who learned devastatingly early how fraught the relationship can be between size and lovability. Coming of age in the 1990s, when heroin chic was a runway look and food was rarely evaluated as nutritive beyond emblazoned fat-free, low-fat, and non-fat labels did not help matters. My family being in the restaurant business made things more complex. Food was our livelihood, and yet it was painfully clear that I should not eat it too indulgently, voraciously, or guiltlessly. Guilt-free, that was another label. Second, I've been a person in the field of wellness for most of my career. I've been the cheerful face and occasionally headless body, modeling in ad campaigns for international athletic brands, in yoga videos, and DVDs for glossy magazines, and in recent years via my own social media feed. I have never paused to consider the irony of that word in this context. Lately, your feed may be telling you to fast. Mine is. Anyway, I really kind of want to keep reading this essay. Is that terrible? Can I read some more? You may. I'm... I'm you, you, you got the job as the audio voice. If we are. <laughs> I know it's just so good. I just want to keep reading it. I bet everybody's loving this. Okay. If you are reading this, you survived a time in history characterized by illness, loss, death, and isolation. Leaving our homes was dangerous. So for more than a year, we sheltered in place, often moving less and sometimes eating more. If we were lucky enough to have full fridges and freezers and cupboards and hidden stashes, even from our spouses of the good chocolate. At the time of writing, one in five American households with school-aged children is food insecure. The longer I inhabit planet Earth, the easier it is to see through the fever dream of the wellness machine, how it can be little more than capitalism and yoga pants. New look, same old power structure and biases. And then let me see if I'll... And you're talking about your daughter. 
Let's see if there's another paragraph I should read. I mean, it's all amazing. I mean, this is also good, but I don't want to bore anybody. So they should read it. I wonder if they all relate to having stashes of the good chocolate hidden from their spots. <laughs> oh my God, totally. I have like a whole cabinet. The whole point of this moment is that we did not die. Some bodies will shed the weight they gained in quarantine. Some won't. This is not a judgment on bodies, just the evergreen data on dieting. It's time both individually and collectively to stop conflating health and thinness. They are not the same. The former is life-affirming. The latter is often wielded to control women. I'm not saying you should or should not lose weight. That is not my business or anyone else's. I'm saying that the measuring device was always broken. I'm saying that our mother bodies never needed to bounce back, only to heal. I am saying that these mother bodies, which built other bodies and fed and bathed and soothed them, which plied the young bodies with snacks through remote school and were their primary playmate, teacher, cook, nurse, art therapist, music teacher, pillow fort, architect, to name a few, do not need to subscribe to the latest diet of cavemen or not eat like as many as 57% of adolescent women in the U.S. who engage in crash dieting, fasting, and more. And then I'll just skip to the last paragraph. What I'm saying is that I need to admit to being the unwitting evangelist of a radical new post-pandemic crash diet. Perhaps I should say smash. Technically, it was an accident, but it tasted delicious. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> okay, so that's just like the gist of the piece. Yeah. Okay, so tell now go tell me more about you and then your body and your quarantine experience and uh, the crux of this essay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not unique. It's the experience of having grown up with you know, diet culture being all around. And as I mentioned in the essay, I came of age in the 80s and 90s. And I think it's safe to say that diet culture was more powerful and visible and and probably we can say nefarious than ever before. And what happened with this essay, the moment that sparked the essay was that I accidentally smashed my bathroom scale. A glass of water fell down and it just exploded into a zillion pieces. And the feel, like just looking at it felt spectacular <laughs> because as I said, you know, my struggles or with body image are familiar. They're not unique. I related so deeply to a recent post of yours where here you are, this formidable person holding an award that you've been looking forward to and excited about for so long. And then, and it's so relatable. And then to see the photo and the thing that registers the most is how you appear to yourself or, or to invisible critics that we've been, that have been kind of whispering over our shoulder for our entire lives. And so this was my way of addressing those voices head on. And, you know, that doesn't mean that if you want to lose weight, that's problematic. It's, it's doing what is actually healthful for your body. And I think the way that mindfulness and meditation is maybe most useful is replacing the voices in our heads that are not our voices, that are the voices of something else telling us that we need to be smaller, different, you know, thinner, that, that take away our gusto when we're standing there holding the award. And I... I also am intrigued and also incensed all the time by how it makes women smaller and the mind share that it commands of women in particular. I have a hard time bringing to mind a man at the top of his field accepting an award focusing on his body image. And I can guarantee that just about every woman listening right now can relate. 
So I take that very I mean, in my defense, it was a terrible picture and I did <laughs> look terrible and I will never share that picture ever. I it was awful. Okay, so maybe it it was the angle, but I have to say like part of just in my own defense here for 2 seconds. Yes, like I was super proud of the award and I knew that it was wrong that I was focusing on what I looked like. However, I had gained like quite a bit of weight in a very short period of time and I had no clothes that fit and you know that feels terrible. So for me, like my motivation right now at least is like I just want to fit into my clothes because honestly I don't have time to be like dealing in my closet and like trying to figure out that like the small subset of things that actually fits and like it, it commands a lot of headspace and I do not have time. What? My headspace is booked. Like I don't have time for this. Yes. You do not have the headspace and it's very expensive to buy new clothes. Yes. I don't want to do. Yes. It's expensive and time consuming and all of it. Right. But I think, and, and please don't, I didn't, I didn't mean to like inflate that photo. I just meant that it was so relatable. It was so very, very relatable. Not that it was a bad photo. Either. No, no, no. I know. But you didn't see the bad one. I'm just saying it was really bad and you would have freaked out if you had seen it too. That's all. Just saying. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I saw nothing wrong with the photo. No, I, just, I posted the good photo. I didn't post the bad photo. I related very deeply to your, to your caption about the, you know, the inner turmoil. And I guess like that's where I see my, my role is that inner turmoil and befriending that voice, you know, because whether you're losing weight or gaining weight or, you know, you're just picking up the kid at school, you're making a meal, you're eating a meal. It is incumbent upon us to be a little kinder in our own heads. You know, the same way that we are, I would, I imagine with our kids, you know, like I hear you talk about your kids and particularly how the messages that they get about body image and some of the things that we say to ourselves, we would never ever dream of uttering to another person, let alone our child, right? So it's just like hearing, noticing that voice. Mindfulness is not about being different or better or blocking out thoughts. It's about observing from a more centered place, observing, making space for, and then could you infuse a little kindness, right? While you're in this place of, you know, writing a book and wanting to feel good. And just, can you let that voice focus on health as opposed to thinness, right? And just that ongoing conflation that we do where one supposedly correlates with the other and they just absolutely don't, <laughs> right? You can be very, very thin and very unhealthy. You can be a larger body and be totally in perfect health. And I just think that untangling those messages is a really important task. It's not easy, but it is really important. And that does lay the foundation for real health, right? Like, yes, because, you know, I don't know about you, but when I'm kind to myself, I'm, I'm more likely to sit down and, you know, think about how you would speak to a child or how you would care for a child, like make myself a good meal, have a cup of tea, get a little bit more sleep something doesn't fit and I maybe can have a sense of humor about it. Or, you know, I can see the long game of, of just being kind to myself today and, and, and letting things unfold. Whereas if we're constantly obsessed with calorie counting and the, you know, what others say and think and how things look and the Instagram 
algorithm and on and on, we're, we're whiling away precious time, right? Then we're totally agree. Yeah. like, our kids are, our kids are growing up. We're receiving awards. We're not receiving awards. We're, you know, we're with our friends and we're not focused on what's actually happening. We're not mm-hmm. taking it. You know, and I think everybody can relate to that. So it's just, you know, how much of that mind share, how much of that inner landscape do we want dominated by this question and this conversation? I mean, I feel like, and I don't know about you as you've, as we've sort of both grown up, I also grew up in the eighties, nineties and, you know, was born in the seventies and, you know, I feel like for a long time there was this unrealistic body image aspiration, right? So I've let go of that for sure. Like I'm not even trying for that. I'm just trying to like feel okay for me in my body, in my closet. Do you know what I mean? And I've actually noticed that as we all age, and I don't know if you've seen this too, but the women who are too thin look much older, Yeah, right? Their faces don't look as good. And like, especially in this age of Zoom, I'm like, it's all about the face, right? (laughs) So there's almost a downside as you get older when the cheekbones are too pronounced and, you know, it's, it's not as flattering. I think you have to have a full life enough to get, keep, I don't know. I, I, or maybe it's just different ideals of beauty, or maybe I shouldn't even say that. So anyway, you tell me, what do you think? I think, but I think even the way that we view aging for women versus men, is so intense and unfair and fraught, right? Like guys get the silver fox thing and the rugged thing and the salty thing. And we just think, oh, I look tired or, you know. So the standards are, the the measuring device was broken from the start. You know, that was was kind of my hope for the essay and the takeaway. And and I do believe that. That doesn't mean I don't, that I have the answers. That does not mean that I don't log on to Zoom and go like, oh my God, again, you know, (laughs) I look so tired or there's no filter that's going to help me here. You look amazing. You were like gorgeous and beautiful and amazing. So don't, I can't believe you would even think that, but anyway. But but I think that's the point, right? Isn't that the point that it doesn't actually matter how we look? It's just this voice that's so pervasive. And so it really helps and is important to start to recognize it. And, and sometimes it helps me to have a little sense of humor with it. Like, Oh, okay. I see you mean girl in my head (laughs) (laughs) and to really like have a relationship with our body in the same way that we, we know intuitively how to have with our friends, with our kids, like how to, how to really befriend and tend other people and other beings in a kind way, we somehow forget when it, when it comes to ourselves. And the more we're mean to ourselves, like that doesn't inspire me to do good things. That inspires me to go down all the wrong rabbit holes of bad self-destructive behavior when I'm mean to myself. Right. And it makes you cranky with your kids and your writing's not as sharp and your mind is foggy and tired. I mean, there are all these drawbacks to that and we all know them well. Right. And so you know, it's figuring out a little patience, a little kindness, and it's also understanding the process, right? Like, I think we all envision there's somewhere to get. Like, once we get to this size, or once we eat like this, or once we do this, whatever, this many steps per day, it's just all of these different forms of calculus within our own lives. And the truth is that it's all in process all the time. There's never a place you arrive. 
right? So it's how you treat yourself along the way and how we're talking to ourselves inside our own heads. And so I do think that that is a value of, of meditation and, and of yoga. And those things have helped me greatly. You know, I, I don't, I haven't, I don't know that I've talked about it in public, but I grew up with like very rigid ideas around food and yoga was one way that I kind of retrained my relationship with my body over time. And that doesn't mean that I'm done. (laughs) It just, it just means that I have more kindness and a little bit more perspective, I guess, is the big thing that I, what do you mean by rigid? What did you mean by that? Oh, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm unique in this, but I remember I'm very tall. So I was always bigger than other kids. And that's sort of the first time that I remember feeling not right in my body. You know, I'm five, nine, which is not giant, but it's, it was always taller than all the other girls and boys in my class. And, you know, I remember being nine years old and wanting to lose weight. And shockingly, sadly, that's not a unique statistic. And I, I find that really heartbreaking. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, which I go into in the essay, I just, it finally became like a funhouse mirror image of body autonomy. Like suddenly you become pregnant and people feel entitled to give you all kinds of advice, to touch you, strangers touch you. And knowing that I was having a girl, it just suddenly, something broke. And I became so clear that I didn't want to contribute so much mental energy to fitting a certain, you know, idea of myself. And I also just didn't want this, you know, baby on the way whom I never met. I'd never done this before, but I knew that it was going to be in the air. And if I didn't have a kind relationship with myself, then what was she going to pick up on? And it didn't happen overnight. Like, I think I was ready. I was primed. But then once I got pregnant and I knew I was having a girl, something really switched. And I started to see everywhere kind of the game that's, that's played. And, and that doesn't mean that you know, to your point about wanting to eat healthfully and feel good in your body and fit in your clothes, that doesn't mean that's bad. It means it's part of your relationship with your body, but it's got to be done with some kindness. I totally agree. I totally agree. Rebecca, thank you. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for writing for Moms Don't Have Time to Write. I'm so excited about your book, Still Life. I can't wait for it to come out. And I'm just so glad our, our paths have crossed. And here's to being kind to ourselves and our journeys. You know, why not? We might as well be. I, your voice, I think, brought a lot of kindness and light during the pandemic to a lot of people. And that's a huge thing. I, I include myself. Um, oh, so, thank you. So you. You are doing that. And I, and I, it's been, it's been an awesome gift and I don't know how you get it all done. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that I'm excited to see your next journey and to, to read your book when it comes out. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. We'll stay in touch. I will. I will. Okay. Bye, Rebecca. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Don't forget to follow the private support group at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight on Instagram. Thanks.